This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Thank you, Roger, and good morning. Good morning, world, and it's good to have you with us for our weekly get-together here on Saturday morning on WGN Radio. We, as I mentioned earlier, will be talking about some grants available for rural schools across the country to work on adding to the STEM program, the science program. We'll talk to uh, the lady who has all the information on how you apply and how you can qualify. And then later on in the program, we're going to South America, to Brazil. Well, actually, he's here in North America now, but he does have a home in Brazil. Dr. Michael Cordonier, soybeansandcorn.com. Always an interesting conversation with Michael when he joins us. So uh, we want you to share that with us here on the Saturday morning show because we do have a couple of other things to talk about as well. Story this morning, another case of African swine fever discovered in China. The uh, Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs reported late yesterday the disease had been detected on a farm in the central province of Hunan, where 4,600 pigs were being raised. They will be euthanized, although just 171 of the pigs had died and 270 were sick. Ministry regulations require all pigs on an affected farm must be culled and disposed of and the area quarantined and decontaminated. And now... The uh, Well, the disease detected in August has now killed more than a million pigs in China, prompting restrictions on shipments of most of China's 700 million hogs, even healthy ones. More about that coming up a little bit later. But we're going to... You may want to get a pen and paper or computer in hand and jot down some information because rural schools across America are uh, eligible to apply for science funds for their rural school. And uh, we have the lady here who will tell us all about it when we continue on the Saturday morning show. Well, as I've mentioned, I do get many press releases across my desk, and one that recently caught my eye had the headline, Illinois Farmers Can Nominate Schools for $10,000 and $25,000 STEM grants. That caught my attention. And so pursuing it further, it's a story that we get from America's Farmers Grow Rural Education. And with me on the line from St. Louis this morning is Aaron Glarner, who is the Community Outreach Manager for America's Farmers Grow Rural Education. Let's begin, Aaron, by learning more about the organization itself. What is it? What does it do? 
Sure. So the program started in 2011. And since the program started, we have actually given away over $16 million to over 900 rural public school districts throughout the United States. And basically, the program was started because farmers saw a need in their rural communities to provide more robust resources in the classroom to enhance STEM curriculum, which in turn better prepares students for ag-related fields of study in the future. So they really just wanted to help strengthen the rural communities throughout the United States by enhancing um, these resources and helping um, provide these ten or $25,000 STEM-related grants. We are talking about sizable monies here. Who is making that available? So it, this is available through the Monsanto Fund, which is a philanthropic arm of Bayer Company. And has it been in existence for several years? Yes. So like I said, the program itself has been um, in existence since the Monsanto Fund does have other uh, programs, um, grant-related programs available uh, throughout the company as well. Okay, and for people who are not familiar with the term STEM, uh, define that for us. Yes, that is a combination of science, technology, engineering, and math. And it's being talked about more and more in organizations like FFA and 4-H, and now we're talking about it in rural schools. So how do people apply, and is it across the nation? Yes, it is across the nation, so um, any state is eligible to uh, participate. And how the program works is a eligible farmer will nominate their local public school district and once nominated, a school district will receive an invitation code with an opportunity for them to go online and submit a grant application. And farmers have one of three ways in which they can nominate their school district. If they have participated in any of our programs in the past, they will have recently received a postcard in the mail where they can simply fill out their information, nominate their school district, and place it back in the mailbox. They can also call our toll-free number, which is one 267 3332 or they can also visit our website at www.americasfarmers.com. The process for the farmer is real easy, takes less than five minutes, and they have the opportunity to nominate one local public rural school district of their choice. And when should they be doing this? Now? Yes. Yes. So uh, we officially opened for nominations January 1st. Farmers have until April 1st to nominate their school district. And then schools have until April the 15th to submit their grant application. Can you give me an idea of some of the questions they're going to have to answer? What, What qualifies a school for this award? So it's a pretty robust uh, grant application. They just need to give a lot of detail about the project that they're working on. They need to um, give a lot of detail on the um, budget that they are looking to spend. So for instance, like I said, we have a ten dollars or $25,000 grant. So a school can choose which they apply for, but if they are applying for a $25,000 grant, but their budget only shows that they need about $15,000 worth of money, then they're better off applying for the $10,000 grant and seeking additional funds elsewhere. Um, because we award one $25,000 grant per state and then one $10,000 grant per crop reporting district within each state. So that's how the money is allocated. So two really qualifications, 
in in what they're asking for and what they're going to get. Correct. Okay. So what kind of uh, schools have wanted in the past? Can you give me any examples that would help our listeners know what uh, made it possible for another school to get it in the past years? Sure. So there have been quite an array of projects that that have been funded through the program. One actually came out of the state of Illinois a couple of years ago. It was a, um, unfortunately, a local farmer had lost his arm in a farming accident. And so a middle school um, purchased a 3D printer with the grant money that they won, and they spent the entire year designing and building a prosthetic arm to provide to that farmer. So that's really one um, great success story. Another one recently, um, just in the last two years, was a um, school for the deaf and blind uh, purchased an augmented reality sandbox, which provided um, those students who are hearing and visually impaired to have a better hands-on opportunity to study um, water ecosystems, geological systems, and that kind of thing. So those are a couple of really great stories, but I can tell you other projects that are typically funded. uh, Greenhouses are real popular, either overhauling um, an existing greenhouse or starting a new one. Um, We've also overhauled outdated science laboratory uh, equipment. Uh, We most recently are also um, providing a lot more welding equipment uh, for those students that are looking to go into uh, trade-focused fields of study in the future. Uh, 3D printers, Chromebooks, those kinds of things. Um, Anything that you can think of that has anything to do with STEM education are projects that we are looking to fund. Size of the school make a difference? No, it does not. I mean, it's, we are focused on the rural uh, school district, but no, anyone is eligible to apply. Well, it's a great program, and I'm delighted that uh, the Monsanto Fund is doing it for the reason they're doing it. And uh, I would, can you give me an idea of how many applications you'll get in the course of the year? Well, it really depends, but um, we have seen anywhere from 500 to over 1,000 applications. And the number of grants that we give out each year just depends on the number of ten dollars or $25,000 grants. Last year, I can tell you, we awarded 159 school districts throughout the United States grant money. Again, it's about $2.3 million each year. So one more time before we leave you this morning, I'm fascinated by this program, and I'm, I'm surprised I haven't heard about it really until this year. But uh, give me, again, the contact information to applying for the application and where they send it or where they call it. Give me the details. Yes. Okay, sure. So farmers have from now until April the 1st to nominate. They can do that one of three ways. Uh, They can either go online at www.americasfarmers.com. They can call our toll-free number at 1-877-267-3332. Or if 
they have participated in our program in the past, they will have received a postcard in the mail that they can simply fill out and return back via mail. Again, it's a very simple process for the farmer. It takes less than five minutes. They have until April 1st, and then the school districts will receive a notification once they have been nominated with an invitation code to apply, and school districts have until April the 15th to submit their grant application. And then everything goes through a panel of math and science teachers for our finalists, then that's turned over to our Farmer Advisory Council, and winners will be announced in August of this year. August of this year. That'll be a natural announcement, I would guess. Yeah, no, it's it's a very great opportunity for school districts to take advantage of. So I highly encourage farmers to nominate and school districts to apply. Well, Aaron, you are a uh, mother load of knowledge this morning, and I thank you for that. I wish you continued success on the program, the outreach program for America's Farmers Grow Rural Education. A visit with Aaron Glarner, who is Community Outreach Manager for America's Farmers Grow Rural Education. It's 25 minutes after 5 o'clock on a chilly morning, but we've had a lot of chilly mornings so far this winter and more on the way. But uh, nice to have you along here on the Saturday Morning Show. I mentioned earlier this week that so far the year 2019 has not been a good year from the standpoint of losing personal friends and movers and shakers in the world of agriculture. Started with the passing of Conrad Leslie, world-renowned analyst and trader, particularly focusing on soybeans at the Chicago Board of Trade. And we interviewed him many times. He passed away earlier this year. Then our good friend across the lake in uh, Michigan, Berrien County, Michigan, uh, Herb Teichman, who uh, was known internationally for his apple and cherry orchard work and uh, operated uh, the tremendous fruit farm where we spent many times with the uh, Teichmans at the World Cherry Spitting competition. Uncle Bobby and I would be over there to emcee that event many, many times, and he passed away. And then on the 1st of February, Harold Steele, lifelong farmer, Princeton, well, actually Dover, Illinois, but uh, we kind of say Princeton. But talk about a man who was a delight to know and certainly a mover and shaker in farm policy. He was the president and CEO of both the Illinois Farm Bureau and country companies, and he was a member of the American Farm Bureau from 1971 to 1983, serving on its executive committee in 81 and 82. And then he was nominated by President George H.W. Bush to serve as chairman of the board of the Farm Credit Administration from 1989 to 1992. And one of the things, of course, that I remembered, he was named an outstanding young farmer of Illinois in 1956, named a master farmer by Prairie Farmer Magazine in 1970, received the Distinguished Service Award from the University of Illinois in 1984 and in 2000 recognized by the Lincoln Academy of Illinois for his contributions to agriculture. Not only that, he was a delightful person who collected 
farm equipment, but not big farm equipment. He uh, collected the smaller items like the hand corn planter and cultivating hose and things of that type. And he grew his collection to the point where he had to build a pole barn to house it all. One of my favorite stories about Harold and his wife Margie is that uh, he kept bringing home all of this antique equipment and finally Margie said, you got to stop. This is just too much and you got to decide it's going to be your toys or me. And then Harold's closing line was, golly, I'm going to miss that lady. Well, we were out there many times, spent uh, evenings in their home and uh, sorely missed. And uh, there will be private services to be held a later date. But those of you who had the opportunity to know Harold Steele were blessed with a knowledgeable person in agriculture and uh, one who liked to share it. And he and Margie... uh, were veterans from World War II. They were both in the European theater. They met in Austria, and they were married in Austria. And as I'm trying to remember, but I think they were both involved in the Third Army under General George Patton. So uh, that's the story, and uh, uh, we and the family will miss Harold Steele. And at 25 minutes before 6 o'clock, it's time for Samuelson Says. A look at something that happened at the big game last Sunday night, the Beer Wars. We'll talk about it in half a minute. Well, I wonder if the producers of the Bud Light beer commercial that ran in the big game Sunday night realized they would be starting a beer war or a corn war. There is no question that putting the line no corn syrup on the screen with no explanation angered corn farmers and it surprised many others to learn that beer would be linked to the sweetener. But corn farmers immediately felt attacked by the ad. Mark Recker, who is chairman of the Iowa Corn Growers, put it this way. As a family farmer, I am disappointed that Bud Light chose to denigrate corn in their commercial as part of a marketing scheme to attack their competition. And Twitter lit up with outrage from corn producers. Many videos were posted showing Bud Light drinkers pouring the beer down the drain. Miller Lite responded by posting this on Twitter. Hey, Bud Light, thanks for including us in our first Super Bowl ad in over 20 years. You forgot two things, though. We have more taste and half the carbs. It's Miller time. Well, surveys show that Bud Light is still the most popular beer in America, taking a 15.4% share of the market, They rank number one with beer drinkers in 33 of the 50 states, including Iowa, the number one corn-producing state in the country, and I wonder how long that will last in light of the commercial. Mark Recker summed it up by saying, Please leave us out of the beer wars. Support your local corn farmers by standing with us and choosing products that include corn. I certainly agree with Mark and offer this advice. Don't mess with U.S. corn growers. 
My Thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Tribune Radio Networks. Coming up, we'll learn a lot more about the soybean crop in South America when Max visits with Dr. Mike Cordonier of Soybeans and Corn when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. We're pleased to have the Soybean and Corn Advisor with us this weekend. Mike Cordonier, welcome to the studio, sir. It's always my pleasure, Max. This time of year, we watch uh, your advisories closely, and we listen to what you have to say because you watch South America so intently. How does this season differ in terms of watching the crop down there, uh, how does it differ from all the others that you followed over the years? Well, this has not been a typical summer in Brazil. You know, they started off really fast, record fast planting. October was good. November was really good. Uh, everybody's estimates were going sky high, and then the weather turned bad. So end of November, the rain started to taper off. Uh, basically, no rain at all in December, which is very unusual. And now... Almost every state in Brazil has lower yields compared to last year. Uh, very long periods of dry weather just really hit the early maturing soybeans when they were filling pods. To give you an example, my high water mark for Brazil's soybean production was 123 million tons. 123. That compared to what last year? 119. But when I was 123, some people were 130. Everybody was really enthusiastic about the crop. Well, now I'm down to 113. And there's some people down to close to 110. So we had lots of enthusiasm early, but the weather did not cooperate. And now everybody's talking about disappointing yields, lots of variability. So it's going to be way down compared to last year. Now, for several weeks, you've been revising down your estimate for the Brazilian bean crop. I mean, week after week, it seems like I've noticed uh, in your letter that you've taken off another million metric tons each week. Yeah, I always assume the weather's going to be normal, you know, past a week out or so. But the forecast always kept calling for rain, and the rain never quite materialized as much as what they thought. So it keeps going down. Uh, I have a negative bias, so I think it might go lower still. In fact, the Soybean and Corn Producers Association of Brazil just last week uh, dropped their estimate down to 101. That's the lowest one out there. So it's really been going down fast. Now, I was going to ask you that. What is... The possibility, because it, it seems like that 100 million metric ton number is a magic number out there in the minds of some. And if you drop below that, there's real potential for a lift in prices. What, what's your gut feeling about the, the ability to take it that low? Uh, I'm not there right now. Now, there is some rain in Brazil. In fact, this week is probably going to be the best rains for a while in central Brazil. Now, if it returned dry again for the next couple of weeks, then the medium maturity, late maturity soybeans would be hit hard as well. So I'm not quite that low now. Could we get that low? Sure. Uh, it just kind of depends uh, how the weather plays out here for the last half of the rainy season. My concern is that if the second half of the rainy season is as bad as the first half, uh, we're all going to go lower in our estimates. The crop, there, there's some that will not be improved by rain at this point. I mean, it's too late for some of it, correct? No, I'll give you an idea. Uh, we're probably about 30% harvested right now in Brazil, which means at least 50% of the crop's turning yellow. And once the beans turn yellow, you can't help them yield-wise. So only half of the crop could be helped going forwards, and that depends if you get the rain or not. So, no, my number's never going to go up you know, going forwards. 
And lest we forget, they've had one good crop after another in, in many of those areas down there. Didn't I read you to say that it, this was, the what, the first time in eight years that the crop in Parana will be lower than the year before? Uh, correct. Uh, they had seven good years in a row. Uh, Parana is the second biggest producer of soybeans in Brazil. So, But unfortunately, this year, that's where the weather was the driest. Uh, so they had some terrible yields there. So it's the first time in eight years. So they've been on a roll here lately. And acreage overall was up significantly this year, was it not? I think it's up maybe 2% compared to the prior year. Now, CONAB, the Brazilian you know, USDA equivalent, will be out with a new estimate next week. Uh, we'll see what they say about the acreage. But more importantly, they'll have the first estimate of the safrinha corn uh, in Brazil next week. Before we get to talking about the corn a little bit, how, how does CONAB do? I mean, you've watched them for, for years. How, how are their numbers? They are the official Brazilian number, of course. How do they track in, in terms of your estimates? Uh, I think they do pretty good. Uh, they do a very, very thorough report. Their monthly report is 150 pages long. You're kidding. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Is that because they have so many field survey points or what? Well, no, they talk about rural credit. They talk about prices. They talk about exports. They talk about... Uh, financial things. They talk about the weather. It's really, really, it's too much, really. Uh, they do very good. Uh, they're maybe not as good as USDA, but I can't fault them, and here's why. USDA can send out people to do surveys in our summertime because the crop is generally about the same stage all over the country. That's not the case at all in Brazil. There's no one month you can go to Brazil and take a field survey because there's some corn already harvested, other corn being planted. Some beans are maturing other beans are still vegetative so you can't go out in the field and do a complete survey it's just not possible the geography makes it difficult to do that oh, yes. kind of survey yeah yeah uh, spread out over such an area oh yeah for- it's spread out over 2000 miles north and south and 1000 miles east and west and in monte grosso they plant the soybeans very early you know september 15th but in rio grande do sul southern brazil they won't plant until maybe december so some beans are maturing and harvesting. They were harvesting beans in Monte Grosso before Christmas, and they were still planting in Rio Grande do Sul. So the geography really spreads out to maturity. That's Safrinha corn crop. How does it appear? I think the area is going to go up a little bit, but there's getting to be more and more reports. People worried about dry weather. So in the areas where it was dry for the soybeans, it's also dry soil moisture for the corn. Now, there's still plenty of time to plant, Uh, The window doesn't close until like the end of February, and they're planting at a record fast pace, double the normal pace, because the soybeans are record fast. So there's still plenty of time. Uh, Like my concern is if the second half of the rainy season isn't very good, that suffering corn could have a problem. Right now, everybody's just sort of waiting to see what the acreage will be, and Konab will give us their first estimate next week. Uh, USDA, of course, do the shutdown. We haven't heard anything from them lately. So we'll see what they say as well about that crop. As we take a look at Argentina, you dropped your estimate there earlier in the season, did you not, on the soybean crop? Argentina's complicated. Uh, They had dry weather to start, then had very heavy rains, no flooding rains, but in this narrow band. So they lost about 300,000 to 500,000 hectares of soybeans that were either not planted or flooded out. But outside of that flooded area, the crop was doing pretty good. So I did lower my... Argentine soybeans a little bit because of the acreage is down from what we thought. And on the corn side of Argentina, I just raised my corn estimate in Argentina. Uh, there's going to be some 220 bushel corn in Argentina. Mm-hmm. The early planted crop that was not in the saturated areas is going to do very, very well. 
So Argentina is sort of a, a mixed bag. Um, they're getting a little bit drier now, which is a good thing for Argentina. Yeah, lest we forget, late in the season, things can still fall apart down there, as, as we saw a couple of years ago with excessive rains. Well, a couple of years ago, April was terrible in Argentina. It just rained and never stopped. It had 20, 30 inches of rain, flooded out a lot of areas. You know, in that area of Argentina, it's as flat as a table. The soil holds water very well, which is good when it's dry, but it's bad when it rains. So when you get a big, heavy rain in Argentina, there's no place for the water to run. It's very flat. It takes a long time to drain. So their problem, and last year was a drought. Two years ago was a flood, so they just can't quite get a good year in a row. Do you sense that they'll be doing any field tile work down there? Are they? Have you seen any of that? I mean, obviously, that's been an answer for drainage challenges for many of our growers in the heart of the Corn Belt. Is that being done in Argentina? Not as much as U.S., but they are doing some. Uh, so not as much as the U.S. While we're talking about structures and it's probably a good time to talk about infrastructure. They have aggressive plans in Brazil. And what's your gut feeling about the ability to make that happen? Well, they're slowly making it happen. And a couple things I think are most important. Uh, Highway 163, which goes from northern Mato Grosso straight north to the Amazon. Now, two years in a row in February, there is about a 40-mile stretch that's not asphalted. But it's in the hilly area. The trucks can't get up the hill. Big, long, you no know, traffic jams. The no pictures more. The pictures have been ugly. I, we've uh, seen. Well, the situation's been ugly. Uh, it's like 20-mile-long traffic jams. Truckers Slipping waiting and there sliding all over the place in the video clips. Yeah. Now, the government was very embarrassed about this. And they have a new program this year uh, in the unasphalted area. They positioned uh, three sets of uh, teams with equipment and trucks and road graders and everything to try to prevent this problem. Now, the new administration, which just took office in January, swears they will get it all asphalted this year. So hopefully that will all be resolved. But more long-term, I think a bigger thing is a railroad. Straight from Monte Grosso, straight north to the Amazon. It's going to parallel this highway. Uh, it goes out for bids this year, hopefully. And it's going to take 7 to 10 years to finish the railroad. So eventually... Uh, more and more of the grain in Brazil head north to the Amazon. Single track? Single track. Uh, that's all they do in Brazil. <laughs> it's hard enough to build one track, much less two. Uh, I always thought that was kind of short-sighted. Uh, they got a railroad in southeast of Mato Grosso, and I was watching them build it, and they only put in a single track. Why don't you do a double track? And I was talking to the engineer who was out there looking at the construction one day, and he said, listen, it's hard enough to get the money for one track. We'll worry about two tracks later on. <laughs> so This has been the Achilles heel, though, for, uh, for Brazilian agriculture, has it not? The transportation infrastructure, and, and if, I, if I'm not mistaken, they're getting their act together. It's slowly getting their act together. And let me expand upon this northern arc of ports. Uh, these are ports on the Amazon River and in the northern Atlantic coast of Brazil. Uh, right now, about 20 million tons of grain goes north, but give it five or ten years, and it'll be 50 million tons going north. So eventually, half of Brazil's grain will go north instead of going south to the ports of Santos and Paranaguá. Now, the port of Paranaguá down in southern Brazil, they know there's competition coming. So they're in a big expansion project, you know, dredging the berths, putting in new berths, be able to handle 80,000-ton vessels instead of 60,000-ton vessels. So they're slowly getting their act together. And the expansion of grain is in the northern part of the country, and that's where the infrastructure is improving.
Has there been Chinese investment, and is there likely to be Chinese investment in infrastructure there? Uh, yes, they have invested in some of the ports. Uh, they are one of the bidders for these highway projects and um, railroad projects as well. One interesting thing, all the highways, as they improve the highways, they're turned into toll roads. Now, the farmers say, listen, I paid for this road in my taxes. Now I've got to pay for it in tolls. Sounds familiar. (laughs) And the tolls are really steep. Uh, Just the tolls alone from, say, central Mato Grosso to southern Brazil to a port is about 90 cents a bushel in tolls. (laughs) My, my. And then you get paid on top of that, you get paid like $2.40 in freight. So it's expensive. So, yes, the infrastructure is improving, but it comes at a cost. The time goes quickly when you come to visit, and we always appreciate it, sir. Thanks for giving us an update. Nice to see you. Always my pleasure. Mike Cronier, the Soybean and Corn Advisor. It's five minutes before 6 o'clock news time here on WGN Radio. And looking at the calendar, well, as I mentioned at the outset, the 2019 National Outstanding Young Farmer Awards Congress taking place this weekend right now at the Isle Hotel Bettendorf in Bettendorf, Iowa. And the program will conclude this evening at the annual awards banquet. And we'll be there to serve as master of the ceremonies and from the 10 state winners competing for the national title. We'll be picking, well, I shouldn't say we, because I had nothing to do with the judging. I judged this contest a couple of years, and I said, I don't want to do that anymore because it's too difficult, really, to do it. But tonight, four of the ten Outstanding Young Farmers will be named the National Outstanding Young Farmers of 2019. And uh, probably the biggest honor, besides the recognition, is the fact that on National Agriculture Day in Washington, D.C., the four outstanding young farmers will be in attendance. They'll be visiting with their congressmen and senators on Capitol Hill and spreading the word of agriculture and its importance to the people all over the world. Next week, on the, oh, I should mention today, too, the final day of the Wisconsin Cattlemen's Association Convention taking place in Wisconsin Dells, and today is the second and final day of their gathering there. Now, looking ahead to next week, it's farm show time. We generally think of farm shows in the summertime at Ohio Farm Science Review and at uh, Husker Harvest Days and, of course, at Farm Progress Show. But in the wintertime, a good time to hold a farm show because farmers aren't busy doing a lot of farm work. And so this coming week, the uh, World Agricultural Expo, that's a three-day event in Tulare, California, That'll get underway on Tuesday and continue through Thursday. That is an outdoor show in California. But then the other show is the big indoor show. Kentucky Fairgrounds in Louisville, Kentucky, the National Farm Machinery Show and the Championship Tractor Pulling Competition. That gets underway on Wednesday of this week and will go through the Championship Finals and the Tractor Pull on Saturday night. That is an indoor show. 
And it's good that it is indoors because over the years they've had a lot of wintry weather in Louisville for the National Farm Machinery Show. But I know a lot of you will be heading that way. A lot of you will be probably heading for California and the World Ag Expo in Tulare. And it should be a great time at both of those shows. Interestingly enough, the shows started... 52 years ago, located thousands of miles apart, but they started and have been held the same time ever since the start. One note this morning on another consolidation or acquisition in the food industry. According to CNBC, Tyson Foods, a processor and marketer of chicken, beef, and pork, have held talks to acquire Foster Farms, a poultry products producer, marketer, and distributor. The price tag, about $2 billion, and both companies involved in the transaction are based here in the United States. So that story on the Reuters line this morning, we'll wait for confirmation. But right now, Tyson Foods may acquire Foster poultry farms. Well, we'll see quite a few of you in the Quad Cities this evening and look forward to that. The rest of you we'll see next week here on the Saturday Morning Show. Our thanks to Brett Jackson for handling the engineering chores. Our thanks to you for joining us here on Chicago's very own. The Steve Cochran Show celebrates the most valuable person on the planet weekday mornings at 7.20 on 7.20 WGN Chicago. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.